1: Welcome to another Baseball America podcast with executive editor J.J. Cooper. I'm Josh Norris, and we're going to talk today about the rule changes that were enacted throughout the minor leagues. Uh, It was yesterday when they dropped, and there's rule changes that some may be familiar with. uh, If you followed what was supposed to happen in the Atlantic League or what did happen in the Atlantic League in 2019, the Arizona Fall League in 2019, and some other stuff that was slated to happen in 2020 if 2020 happened. Uh, So it shouldn't be entirely new but there was some other stuff that is less familiar to, uh, to people who pay attention and we're going to go over them today and kind of give our reaction to them. What do you think JJ?
2: Man, people do love to absolutely get mad on social media about rules changes, don't they? Um, oh
1: yeah. I mean, even if, even if, you know, half of social media is, you know, there's too many home runs, there's too many strikeouts, there's too many walks. Well, and the, and the shift is ruining baseball. Well, we're gonna kind of mitigate the shift here at Double A, or try that, or we're gonna you know, change the rules so stubborn bases are more uh, prevalent, and we're still gonna get mad. And there's oh, you could put money on every seat of every person in the house, and somehow that would be a bad
2: thing. Well, and again, that's I don't mind. You know, fans can have their opinions. You know, we, we appreciate that. That's why you come to BaseballAmerica.com, but um, but at the same time. I, my initial reaction on this is having seen most of these rules in some way, shape or form in the Atlantic league. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to uh set on a high point rockers uh, series so that I could kind of see many of these rules in place. Uh, Atlantic league in 2019 had the larger bases. Atlantic league in 2019 had the step-off rule. Atlantic league in 2019 had the automatic ball strike system, which, which you probably know as robo lumps. So those are all things, and they also had some of these pace of game rules uh, as well. All of those things were in place in the Atlantic League. And the best way that I can explain it is, and I think I wrote about this at the time, was you got about four or five innings in, and most of these just kind of faded into the background. I AAA is going to have larger bases. The bases go from eight, from a, you know, from 15 by 15 to 18 by 18. Well, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that the average fan going to a game will never notice that difference. When I That's asked I was
1: gonna say, like if if they had not released this info, nobody would have noticed. Maybe someone would have caught on with, you know, hey, the times from home to first and first to second are getting just a tick quicker these days, and maybe someone would have figured that out. But if they hadn't released
2: this yesterday and they'd just done this kind of covertly, nobody would have noticed. And when I asked uh, you know, players in the Atlantic League, coaches, so what did you notice about? What do you think about the bases? Basically, the only real change that seemed to come from it was his first baseman liked the fact that they had more base to stay away from the uh, spikes of a base runner. I, that's, that's the difference. Now, yes, it does mean that home to first is three inches shorter same for first to second you know all that right
1: Yeah, 89 feet nine inches really doesn't really technically first to
2: second first to second is i i guess yeah is six inches shorter because you have three inches for each each base 89 and a half feet right well but it's really but that's not even that's not accurate because 90 feet was from, I believe, the midpoint of the bag before. Correct? You're our umpire guy. Yeah, I'm not our field dimensions guy. You know, um. but, but my point being, it's a very, very, very small difference. Um, the biggest thing that it did seem to do is that you have a little bit more room at first base. I know that they hope is that it will increase stolen base success rates and ground ball and bunt rates. It's, I mean, it's, it's so negligible as to not going to really affect on that. I don't think, you know, double a, we have that, as you said, I would say that's probably of all these surprising is probably not the right word because, but the, just so that we, everyone listening to this knows what we're uh, talking about. The rule in double a is going to be, you have to have four players on the infield, each of whom must have both feet completely in front of the outer boundary of the infield dirt. So four infielders, and I say four players, but I assume that they're not counting the pitcher on there. You know, they're, they're saying four players in the infield and you all have to be in the dirt, which is a pretty dramatic change. And they're saying there's the possibility that they may require you to have two infielders on either side of the second base in the second half of the season. They haven't determined that yet. But having seen a lot of second baseman play in short right field, that's going to be a pretty significant difference. Um, You know, that's going to absolutely be something I would say probably the most noticeable of these changes compared to recent years because we have seen now a lot of shifting in the minor leagues like we do in the majors. Um, But that said, you know, this is, I mean, It's an experiment. We'll see what happens with it, but uh, you know, I I personally, I I just don't get that outraged about stuff like this. I I, I will be interested to see what that means. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that one, Josh?
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm similar to you. Like, I'm not outraged by any of these. As a matter of fact, as it so happened, we're going to get to this rule a little later, but. The step-off rule at high A, and one of the things I was thinking about on my drive into work yesterday was how much I dislike watching pickoffs and how something that works so infinitesimally is done so often and does lead to the slowdown of the game. And I get the idea of keeping guys close via the pickoff but it's certainly a, an exercise in tedium over and over and over again. And then out of the sky completely unbeknownst to me uh, is this rule where you get uh, two per plate appearance. Uh, and if you try a third and you don't get them, that's a balk. But anyway, back to the other stuff, you know, I'm not really going to get up in arms over any of this. Like, I'm not a fan of eliminating the shift. I like the idea of the strategy. I mean, uh, involved in, Coming up with these shifts, uh, but I understand. I don't see baseball the same way as a lot of fans do. I'm completely, you know, detached from any one team as a favorite, and I kind of watch games, you know, to see this, that, and the other prospect. So it's not about the horse race to me. And you know, my team uh, (air quotes) is not going to be cost a hit or a run or a win or a loss uh, because of shifts. So. You know, my perspective is a little different than everybody else's, and I can understand kind of why everyone's so up in arms. But the fact that we do this on every rule change—that it's killing baseball—and is, you know, it, it's tiresome. But yeah, I'm with you, JJ. It's just—it's just another thing to kind of notice. Like with the uh, with the extra inning rule, the the, the international tiebreaker rule uh, that you saw in the minors in 2019. The only time i ever really noticed it was a the one time it saved me from getting my cameras rained on because you know the game ended before the storms came and every so every other time i just have to remember that the rules in place i to say how the heck did that runner get on second base and they'll say oh yeah extra innings that makes sense but other than that you know it
2: doesn't really take away from my enjoyment of the game well so i think a key thing to note here and again when MLB announces, they announce this as experimental playing rules. The key thing to note is there is a, a methodicalness to having each of these different levels have different rules. So it's not apples to apples. If you wanted apples to apples, one AA league would do one, and you know one would do another maybe because you have different levels and all. But having AA have a shift rule of some sort but the rest of the miners not, essentially creates a control for you in some way where you're going to be able to, MLB is going to be able to see, does this create more balls in play? Now, now here's the thing. I mean, here's the, the, the overarching thing I'll say with this is, I don't think it'll make that much difference. And here's why. You can do, You can try to change in modest ways, the calculus for Bunts for infield hits, for stolen bases, for shifts to have a little bit higher batting average on balls in play. If the strikeout rate remains at the rate it currently is, the balance of, am I better off trying to hit a homer or am I better off trying to sacrifice power to increase contact? Right now, it's very, very heavily in favor of swinging for the fences. A much more efficient way to score runs for most teams right now is by hitting homers rather than trying to string together a rally. And I don't think that any of these changes here are are going to be sufficient to change that. But at the same time, we will see how much this does. And these are experiments. We get down to high A. High A has the step-off rule which was in the Atlantic league. Basically it says you have to disengage the rubber before throwing to any base. If not, it is a balk. Really what this does, if you're a right-handed pitcher, this is not that important to you. If you are a left-handed pitcher, it is because it ends it. Julio Urias should be glad that he is not in high A because, and uh, you know Andy Pettit years ago and all that lefty move where you hang on your balance, on your back foot, and then you land somewhere in that forty-five degree angle between going home and going to first and throw over and hopefully pick off a batter. You can't do that anymore with this rule. It also takes away the inside play. You know, at uh, at second base, you have to step off the base before you start to throw over. Well, what we saw. In the Atlantic League, with this, is two main things I would say. One, we did see more steals, stolen base rate went up significantly. And two, talking to players who were dealing with this rule, it made double plays less likely because if you are on first, you should be able with this to get a good enough lead that it makes it less likely that you're going to be, you know on a double play you know at second base you should be able to get a really good leap those are i mean again those are modest changes in the grand scheme of thing because again the stolen base rate overall still was very modest compared to what it would have been like decades ago but it's again it's something where having it only in high a means okay let's look at what low a stolen base rate is compared to high a and maybe you'll see a significant difference that will be an answer on that then you go to low a and as you said, Lowe is going to have the total of two, uh, you know, step-offs, pick-offs per plate appearance. If you do a third and it doesn't work, then it's a balk, and then they may drop it to one. Well, I'll tell you right now, the limitation as it stands right now means you're largely going to drop it to one right now because if I've got a chance to do two of something freely without any limitation, I kind of want the threat of that second pickoff because once I've made two pickoffs, the third one is something where he literally better be a base. Uh, a base runner is standing somewhere almost halfway to second base before I throw over. So I'm probably going to keep that second one in my back pocket. But this is a rule that I think will have much more impact if it went to college baseball than it went to pros because there are a lot more throwovers in college baseball, I think, than there are in pros. But I, my sense is, again, with that, it's not going to be a particularly um, dramatic one. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I do agree with you. I, I, I don't particularly get a big thrill out of uh, watching a, uh, uh, a pitcher throw over the first.
1: No, it's, for my money, the worst on-field part of the game outside of maybe beanball brawls. Um, I also hope that if they're, if you're going to kind of encourage runners this way to take slightly bigger leads, we do get more back picks. I do like catcher back picks. Those are very fun since they don't happen every, you know, every two or three pitches, it seems like. And when you get them, you get to see, you know, a Yachty Molina kind of uh, exhibit some of his best qualities. Like that's a really, a really fun play that doesn't happen that often and it kind of shows some of the top catchers in the game for you know it shows what they can do and that's really fun i don't know how you feel about that jj but that would be like a little bit of a very small added bonus for me
2: so i i don't mind back picks they're fun i, I agree with you on that like you know the but if, back... you him, if you did if you did them every two pitches it'd be like oh, yeah, what but, are we doing here uh, if you start seeing catchers do that every two pitches something's going wrong because, or oh, um, i'm or with the frequency with which regular pickoffs happen right. i mean also, before we go
1: forward, we need to take time for a word from our sponsor. So going through this, I don't think there's anything crazy, but uh, we are coming back. We've talked about the, the pickoff limitations, the step-off rule, defensive positionings. And now we come to robo umps, which were in play in the uh, Arizona Fall League in 2019 and are going to be in the <clears throat> Low A Southeast League, aka the league formerly known as the Florida State League uh, in 2021. Um, I don't know how you feel about the the automatic ball strike system as it's
2: formerly called JJ. So what are your thoughts? So when we saw this in the Atlantic league, this is absolutely positively to me, the biggest of all of these changes. And the reason I say that is, and this is where this gets difficult because this is an experimental playing rule. Every other one of these rules that we are talking about, I think will have a very modest effect on development. I don't think that's true with this. This absolutely positively benefits certain types of pitchers over others.
1: And it hamstrings certain dimensions
2: of hitters. Well, when in the Atlantic league, talking again, players, coaches, and all who experienced this, what stood out, The the strike zone with the automatic ball strike section, which let me make clear, one thing about an automatic ball strike system, robo-umps, whatever you want to call it, and I've written about this before. I'll try to link to this in our story here. The strike zone becomes what you want it to be. And there are some tricky parts with that. This is why you want to have experiments. But in the Atlantic League, when this was implemented, the strike zone became much more north-south and much less east west well so who does that benefit well actually maybe this is good from a development standpoint it benefits pitchers who are pitching the way that mlb teams are kind of looking for right now nailed it if you are throwing fastballs up in the zone if you're pitching up down fastballs up a curveball that you know that you also throw kind of a 12 to 6 11 to 5 you know one to seven i don't want to discriminate against lefties if you're throwing that kind of those kind of pitches, you'll love this strike zone. You will find very quickly, low-A Southeast hitters will determine, will learn, oh, that pitch at the top is now in the zone? Okay, well, that's something I need to know because that's a harder pitch for me to hit, but I'm going to now have to adjust to that being a strike. With the velocity in today's game, I think those
1: pitches at the top of the zone are unhittable as is so if you're throwing 98 at the top of the zone and it's and you try to swing through it you're probably not going to get to it now if it's a called strike you're
2: in real trouble oh no let me let me i'm going to argue with you it is it depends on what your swing path is like i guess but
1: you know for the for as long as i've watched baseball i've always seen the fastball you know nipple high be almost untouchable every so often you get it and especially with, you know, the way the velocity has increased since I've been watching baseball for like 26 years now, I don't think there's a whole lot of guys that have a lot of success at the top of that zone.
2: Oh, it's a very and effective
1: pitch. I agree with you on it's, that. It's an incre- incredibly effective pitch. But now if you're having it called and you in, in days of, in days without uh, automatic ball strike, you are, you know, you can lay off of it. That's, that's your weapon. But now if you have to swing at it, mm. I don't think it's going to be a very good time for for hitters. Now, if you also want to talk about a type of hitter that's going to be affected
2: by this, the very tall hitter. They are going to have a strike zone that is gigantic. Well, no, no. But okay, so this is what I'm saying. This is where the experiment comes in. That is effectively one of the things that we learned when this came in the Atlantic League. There were some batters who... And this is the things that you have to work out. There were some batters whose strike zones were probably a little bit off for what they are. Like, <laughs> you're right You're right when you say, like, if you, what they did in the Atlantic League is they tried to draw a strike zone based on the height of the player. Now, I will say to me, if you are going to an automatic ball strike system at some point to me, you actually go to a, you, you change the rule. You have a fixed strike zone. Whether you're to me, again, this is if I'm experimenting, I don't care if you're six eight or you're five two. Here's the box. If you throw it in that box, it's a strike. But you are right. Like, but one of the things they learned is, is that some batters, you could have two six foot five batters with seemingly similar stances, and one of them strikes them would seem to be sh- taller than the other and there wasn't a whole lot of transparency on that at the point of, of why that was the case, but that's a, a potential hurdle that you're going to see in the FSL. But you are right. You're, the taller you are, the more you know if you follow the definition of the rule book strike zone, it's going to be a big zone, a bigger zone than you've ever they've ever been used to. And that's the next point is if you follow the
1: definition of the strike zone, oh man, are you going strikeouts are going, I think to go through the roof um even more so than they already are because you're talking about the way the book is written and i think what you the answer is to change the way the book is written yes any part of the ball touches any part of the zone that's a strike and if in theory first of all 12-6 curveballs are going to be extraordinarily valuable under this system because in theory it's where you break the front if imagine the front of home plate extends up as a pane of glass um it's where you break that pane of glass. So in theory, you can land a ball on home plate and that's a strike. Uh, I mean, we saw balls in the Arizona fall league, especially when I got to the video and took a look for from the side where the catcher had to go into your, your, your kind of five hole block to block it. And that's a called strike. And the beauty of that is nobody knows when to argue. Nobody knows who to argue with, uh, on that. And we did see a guy get ejected. I think it was Jalen, Miller arguing with the robo ump. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you it's are
2: ejected
1: basically. Yeah. Uh, it does give the umpire some discretion on some of these calls, but you'd have to be, you know, uh, really sure. Like a ball like bounces through the zone somehow and it, and it registers as a strike. Um, I think the move North South is, is not going to be enough to mitigate the lack of an East West strike zone. And you are going to see a lot of called third strikes. Um, And a lot of guys trying to fish knowing that they're going to be called third strikes necessarily. Um, Well, I think it's a thing that people have wanted for a long time when they see kind of a, a, an Eric Gregg type scenario or an Angel Hernandez type scenario where the, the strike zone seems all out of whack, but I don't think you want the real strike zone. You you don't know what it looks
2: like. But, but this is, again, this is to me, the answer to this long-term is this is where The strike zone is what you want to make it. And like what you just talked about there, there are three different ways that you can, four different ways to me that you can envision the strike zone. One is that you can envision the strike zone as a pane of glass. Imagine like a box, a pane of glass at the front of the plate. And you say, if it crosses through this, it's a strike. Two is you can view it as, same thing at the back of the plate doesn't make a whole lot of sense there because the back of the, you know, the back of the plate is at a point. So let's throw that one out. Three, I always thought thought the, the, the answer to that is just to turn the plate around. Right. But three is to say, envision it actually as an actual box with depth, which makes a much bigger strike zone, even, you know, where if you cross over in any point of this, it's a strike, but four, and this is the answer to me, to me, the strike zone ends up being a box at the midpoint of the plate that's the to me that is the logical long term if you have the precision of a you know visual system that is able to tell exactly where the pitch is to me you look at the midpoint of the plate and that means that you avoid the 12 to six curveball that can almost hit the back of the plate, but still have crossed through the bottom of the zone. You also avoid that curveball, that slider that again, if you talked about it as a as a box with depth, the one that just ticks a little spot on a corner or the top or the bottom at some point. But just say the midpoint. That's the, you know, to me, if you did that, to me, if you again long term, if we are headed this way, if you said, a midpoint of the plate. Here's the box. That's the, and by the way, again, I would say that also, and just build it to be a fixed dimension that Jose Altuve strike zone and Aaron judges strike zone under this new system are the same. I I think that's the best way to do this. Now there's another component of this that is a little messier, um, which is, from a developmental standpoint, I think understandably most people seeing this, you know, the casual fan doesn't follow this that, that much, but major league umpires come from the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I don't have a good answer for you right now, this absolutely positively with, if you don't figure out ways to make adjustments for this, it puts low A Southeast umpires at a disadvantage in their development when compared to every other low A league. Because if I'm not getting a chance to call ball strikes, but these other leagues umpires, the umpires, in the other leagues are, well, how am I being evaluated to move up? Because minor league umpires are being evaluated just like minor league players. Some of them move up, some of them don't. And right now, now, again, there are ways you can do this to me that could mitigate it, but they're not easy. One of them, which is to say that, okay, your umpires are gonna be low A Southeast for part of the year, and then they're gonna rotate to another league. And then you to bring in umpires from one of the other leagues. You're gonna rotate them through so that everyone kind of shares this experimental burden um, of you know loss of development time. But, but that's a hurdle. The other thing that I, I think is key for people to note here is, is you know, we all, there's all the talk about our RoboWomps coming to the majors. Well, right now we're talking about one league at one level in the minors having automated ball strike. That's not going to make a whole lot of impact yet. But if three years from now, Class A and Class A, let's say, are automated ball strike, at that point, the decision long term is made. And I, I tee you up on this because you understand umpiring. You have umpired. I have not the way you have. But mm-hmm. if you're class A down the road, if your class A umpires at low A and high A aren't calling balls and strikes, you essentially have stopped the development of those umpires being <laughs> trying to pick that up at double A and triple A or whatever level. You've kind of cut off the developmental pipeline at that point, I would argue. And at that point, you've made the decision, the long-term decision, kind of a fait accompli. Yeah, I think
1: the other way to kind of mitigate it, if possible, is to take those umpires who are going to be in Florida and cycle them back and forth, if possible, between extended and the, G- and the GCL and the uh, low a Southeast League. So you get live strikes and balls and automatic strikes and balls uh you get a mix a little bit just kind of like you were you would cycle essentially sometimes gcl players back and forth to the the fsl if you need a body or two that's one way to do it but i do worry about yeah a sense of uh, a strike zone uh a sense of strike zone awareness kind of stagnating for those guys and then having to kind of wake back up if and when you get a. you say guys
2: i will note also men and women
1: yes men and women i've just using the colloquial guys but yeah there's i don't know what levels those are two or three of them uh are in are, are going to be at uh, but once they move up i wonder if their um sense of strike zone awareness is going to be rusty and they'll make some horrendous calls because they've gotten used to just kind of sitting back there and watching for box huh. and foul tips and plays at the plate and fair foul down the line all sorts I, of things like that. i'm not
2: even calling it rusty i mean go a step beyond this the typical path of a minor league umpire is someone who relatively lower levels of the minors is an umpire who relatively recently went to umpire school. Yes. And now, I mean, this is one of the things like, you know, when you look at, you know, you have local umpires who help out sometimes who often have a lot more experience than the actual professional minor league umpires do. Because if you're someone who's been working college games and all in your area and high school games for years, that, the, the minor league umpire, uh, you know, in the lower levels is usually a little younger. Um, those, are, those are thousands and thousands of pitches that you simply aren't getting. And again, you can say, I'm going to bear down on them just like if I was calling balls and strikes, not the same thing. But I will
1: also say, and I'm kind of freestyling here. Um, if you are one of those umps at that level, and you can make the decision, essentially, uh, to not take those pitches off. You're not going to call them. You're going to, you know, you're going to listen to what your, your earpiece says. But in watching and listening to what the earpiece says, maybe you kind of fix your own strike zone and learn how to better call the auto zone yourself. And you have, and you can bring that auto zone with you. This isn't a spot for auto zone to the next level. And maybe that way your, your umps start to get more consistent, uh, in their strike zones. You create a more, cons- uh, an automated zone within a human when they bring them to double oh, or a uh, pie. I,
2: I think that may be the intent, but again, I'm just going to say, if you're not calling balls and strikes regularly, and then you get asked to do it at a higher level, that's going to be a very difficult role to do. Oh, for sure.
1: I mean, I, I don't know how I don't. I can't even imagine having you know the voice of whoever in my ear telling me ball strike, ball strike, or I also can't wait for the game that is delayed by buffering. Quite frankly,
2: um, oh no, I, they, they, we've I've seen this. I've been there for that, and basically, that's coming, yeah. <laughs> no, but there is a rule that you have a very short period of time, and if if the uh, technical problems cannot be sorted out pretty quickly you just dump the auto strike system for that inning you know you and by the way it's for the inning is the key point with that also like it's not for the half inning. let's say that in the top of the second the automated ball strike goes out you don't say hey we got it working good for the bottom of the inning nope both teams are going to play under the same rules for that inning and then the inning after that is when you will go back to using the automated ball strike
1: That's good too. I was my, my, my paranoia also kind of led me to a scenario where some nefarious team hacks ABS and does things that are, uh, you know, uh, to their advantage, but that's just me being a little paranoid about how the strike zone might work. In any case, yeah, there's going to be a lot of weird variables to the automatic ball strike system. And I think it's going to be, uh, the biggest and most influential thing that we got out of the rules dump that we had yesterday. Do we have any others that we need to touch on?
2: uh, Uh, No, I think there's another potentially significant one here, which is in low a West on field timers, one in the outfield two behind home plate between the dugouts will be implemented to enforce time limits between delivery of pitches, inning breaks and pitching changes the on-field timer will include new regulations beyond the system currently used in AAA and AA to reduce game length and improve pace of play. Well, so when they say timers, so we're gonna have clocks like we have in AA and AAA and have for a long time. Here's the interesting part about that to me is is we don't know what those new rules and regulations will be, but the biggest thing is the open secret is you have very rarely seen the timer enforced in AA and AAA. It became less and less enforced over the past few years. Is this going to be something that is very closely enforced in low A, or is it something that's going to be... Even the the presence of it has made a difference in AA, AAA, even if it's not always enforced, because it kind of keeps everyone within a, a new normal, I guess is the way I'd say you, you go to as many, if you go to more games than I do, I should say. Yes. So, so with that, what are your thoughts? Having been to many a game where a pitch clock in AA or AAA was uh, technically part of the game.
1: One, you don't notice it. Um, not often it's, it's there. You don't, it's not well enforced. I don't think. And if I remember correctly, there are ways around it too, like, I think the rule is you have to be set by a certain time, and then once you get there, you can just hold your set for however long. Uh, I, I think Wei Hu was, or Chiwei Hu or Yanni Chirinos was the master of that at Durham, where he could get he could come set at like two seconds left on the clock and then hold that set for however long, and it's essentially like you're having forty five seconds between pitches anyway. Um, and you, you know if you're a, a catcher, you can rub up the ball a little bit or do all sorts of things. But it, it never really did anything to the game. I don't think. I didn't feel like the games at AAA or most of Triple A, we had Double A down here except for Richmond, um, were impacted at all. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of worry about it. You know, you're gonna get your pitchers hurt by forcing them to speed up, and it just it just really didn't happen. Um, I think it's just just could be another thing that is there and will eventually uh, kind of just become part of our collective. I I think it's by far behind the the automatic ball strike system in terms of impactfulness and pervasiveness.
2: Right, again, I think one of the key things is we have to see how much it's, as you just said. uh, And and I did like the clause in the the rules dump that it said it will include new regulations
1: beyond those ones, but it didn't specify those. So I'll be very interested to see what those are before I make any judgment on them.
2: Um, Yeah, again, that could go in a whole large realm race. but the, the the key thing I'll say with this is here's my other really cold take, I guess, you know, there's hot takes, there's cold takes. I got a cold take, which is rules changes are part of baseball. Mm-hmm. They always have been. Now there are major rules changes and there are minor ones, but <laughs> when we talked about, the problem that I sometimes have, and again, you're, you have your opinion. I have mine. I'm not saying yours, mine's any more valuable than yours. If you're listening to this and you utterly disagree with me, that's fine. But traditionalists, I would say have effectively treated. I feel like every rules change ever proposed in baseball as if it is something that will, Tear apart the fabric of the game. And we have seen uh, last year, we saw massive rules changes. (laughs) The game has survived the fact that we had extra inning speed up rules in the majors last year and seven inning double headers, and the game still functions. Those are massive. But you rewind a few years ago and the reaction to changing the intentional walk rule to walk to first base instead of throwing four pitches out of the zone was treated as if that was this bridge too far. Oh, and
1: and the reasons for that are so, oh yeah, uh, I forget who it was. Hit one of those once. Okay, so once out of ever and you want to keep the rule in there? No, there's no reason to sit there and watch, but no, Johnny Johnny Pitcher throw four wide ones and
2: waste everyone's time. But the other thing with that is, is, and again, the collision rules were also treated that way and all that. And then these rule changes happened. And once they happened, never is it kind of noticed again. Because why? Because these rules were just not all that significant. Now, again, I'm not gonna tell you that robo lumps is not significant because it is. I'm not gonna tell you the shift rule is not significant because it potentially is. I'm telling you right now the bigger bases you won't notice it. I'm telling you right now the pickoff rule, if you're not a left-handed pitcher you'll probably never notice that that the step off rule, that mm-hmm. that's changed. You know, you may if you are a really if you're listening to this podcast you're probably a pretty diehard fan. But but these things are in many cases minor things. Now at the same time they're also minor enough that if if you're major league baseball and the intent of these are that the game is getting too long. And when we say long, we're not talking about the amount of action. We're talking about the the amount of inaction that fills out what are now a three hour and 10 minute game. I also don't think that these things are going to dramatically change that either. You know, that, that is not something that these rules will will make a massive difference on either. So Again, my boring take on this is my boring opinion is these are, I'll be interested to see what the results of these experiments are. That said, I don't see them making a massive change in most cases, one way or another. Nope, I, I don't. Um, with the caveats I've
1: mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, no, I don't see these making a huge amount of changes. This doesn't change the way the launch angle swing What uh, will happen, I don't think doesn't change the doesn't change the value of a home run for sure uh it doesn't change the idea that a lot of guys a lot of uh any any farm system wants guys who throw the heck out of the ball i mean unless you somehow regulate no fastball can be thrown harder than 95 miles an hour i don't know how you do that but the game's not going to really change fundamentally um you might, you might shave some time off it, but you're not going to change the philosophies right now. You are going to get some guys more hits uh, who are, you know, dramatically shiftable these days. Um, but other than that, it's really not anything crazy, I don't think. And some of the reactions out there are just a little overboard. Well, but But,
2: that's uh, that that is the world. That's that is the the world. And I had again, again, I'm not not denigrating, we're not denigrating you can have that opinion. We're not saying that you're crazy by having it, but we don't see it. Yeah, we, we don't. I mean, and
1: I don't know how, like I said at the top, like I'm divorced from fanhood of any particular team. I don't think you're particularly rooting for any particular team either. And that's an
2: element of fanhood. We are, But but that's not what this reaction is coming from. No one is saying, I hate these rules because they're going to hurt my team. Oh, oh, when... when Not these though, not these.
1: But seven inning double headers last year? Not these rules.
2: The reaction yesterday on this, these are happening at the minor league level. No one who was complaining in my timeline was saying, I hate this because my San Jose Giants are going to be affected <laughs> by this. Everyone who was hating this was saying, why are you trying to screw up baseball by changing it? That was right. the 99% of the response. Now I get 95%. 5% was, I don't like this particular rule for this reason. But 95% of it was, I hate Rob Manfred. I hate how he's ruining the game.
1: Right. And I think well, there's a, there's a whole spiel on that that we can save for another day. But uh, yeah, that's that's largely what these are. And it's, it's almost it's almost the same to me as the reaction every time a minor league team releases an identity, which is the, the, the internet is, oh no, you're ruining it. Go back to whatever it was. This is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And then it sells like hotcakes without fail. But there's a certain sect of people who are by and large online a lot. Uh, who will react negatively to any change because they just hate change. And I think that's the kind of person we're seeing. And it's important to note too, that what you see online isn't automatically reality. It's just, you know, online.
2: Right. I mean, again, that's, you know, and the reality of it is, is that also when you see the new team name, nickname that is crazy and, you know, makes everyone gasp when they first see it and the logo and whatever. Well, the people who are reacting who'd hate it on social media are not in many cases the what the uh, minor league team is aiming for because what they're aiming for is, you know, it, there's not been a team yet that has replaced a boring, not boring, I don't want to judge it, a traditional logo and name with something more Absurd, whatever you want to call it, that hasn't sold more hats. The next one will be the first.
1: They're all boons um, to the to the to the cash register, and that's the point. Is it's not that the front office execs really hate you know the previous team name. It's that you want to you know juice the cash register a little bit, and this is a way to do it. I love most of them. You know, I I have a lot of hats in my closet, quite frankly. And some of them are better than others. Uh, I'll give you an example. Well, this is not a permanent one, but the Carolina Mudcats did the Carolina Micro Brews last year, Mm -hmm. which I thought was an incredible play on words. Like it was a a spectacular, a double entendre as I've seen in some time um, in the minor leagues or anywhere else. And the way they tied it into the classic Brewers uniforms was masterful. Um, I loved it. But I also like you know, when teams come out with silly mascots and silly names and you know, whatever. They're all pretty fun. Some of them are whatever, but most of them are really cool, I think. Um, but no matter what they are, there's a group of people that are going to hate them just because that's what they do.
2: Before we end this, I have one more question for you, Josh. All righty. What's a rule change that's not part of this that you think you'd be interested to see at least experimented with? <laughs> you want to you wanna really break the internet? You want to speed up
1: the game? Here you go. Finite amount of foul balls. You can't foul off 12, 13, 14, 15 pitches and not have a strikeout. Let's, uh, I don't know if it has to be as, as drastic as uh, the third strike on a bunt, but maybe limit it to like three and then you have a strikeout. I guarantee you that speeds up the game. Strikeouts go through the roof because obviously, but the game gets a lot quicker. I think just as the same with uh, pickoffs, just the interminable foul balls during certain at-bats. It does kind of follow a bell curve. Like if you have seven foul ball at-bat, that's one thing. But if you have one of these epic, like 20 foul ball at-bats, it kind of gets entertaining. It gets very entertaining. But, you know, it does, okay, he threw it, it's foul. We have to call time, we have to get a new ball. We have to bring that out, do this, that, and the other thing. It does take up a lot of clock, and I know I'm sure going to get a lot of angry emails, carrier pigeons, what have you, uh, about that. But that's another thing I was thinking of that will never happen. I I hate your rule, no offense, but yes, I I,
2: because I do think that that is something where that is a skill. I, I, again, if we want to encourage better contact abilities, I want to reward the way Boggsian batter who can simply spoil pitch after pitch until he gets one that he can really do something. Oh, with. and, and it should be noted that I am uh, among the, I don't
1: know, not super few, but few who uh, doesn't care about, you know, it doesn't really, it, the three true outcome ball doesn't bother him. My favorite player of all time, hitter at least is Adam Dunn. So there you have so, it. So
2: Okay. So <laughs> now here's mine. The game has changed much like golf courses, where, you know, if you played a modern PGA Tour event on a uh, golf course from 1965, it, it, it would work. I think that we should change, this would be costly, change the minimum distances for uh, the fence. So you should move them out or in? Out. So you want fewer home runs? Yes. Well no, I don't I don't again, it's not because I hate home runs. Right, right, I'm not getting that. But okay, I want wanted... but to me if you create more area in the outfield, that's where you encourage by doing so, it has multiple effects. One, it will lessen the number of home runs. I still want there to be home runs, but it you will want lessen more triples. It. But I want doubles and triples. Yeah. And also, I want uh I, again, I know that we're all products of the game that we grew up with in some ways. I that's loved the, the game of the eighties and the game, the, the, 80s, go the, the game of the
1: eighties. I was going to go on
2: the game of the eighties had teams like you had the St. Louis Cardinals who they were, a, again, we're not going to go ever go back to the uh, turf where, you know, you hit a ball into the gap and it's to the wall. I, I know that's never going to come back. But if you said that all of a sudden the outfield was much larger than it is now or significantly larger, that encourages athleticism, speed in multiple ways. One, it's going to create more room for if a guy hits the ball in the gaps, a double or triple, well, those become more valuable. That encourages that. And two, all of a sudden you need Ranger outfielders. All of a sudden that left fielder who doesn't cover much ground becomes a much bigger liability because that player can't get to the gap on doubles and triples. He's turning outs into extra base hits. So to me, if you said that all of a sudden we made center field 420, 425 as a minimum, and you said that down the lines, and again, I understand you're not going to be able to turn Fenway into all of a sudden it's going to be 330, 340 down the line. There are some issues with that. But if <laughs> Green you Green monster in the middle of the street. <laughs> right. But if you said, though, even you said that as new stadiums are built, these are the requirements, things like that. I think it would have a pretty massive impact on the game. And the other thing I would say is, is I think that we need to acknowledge, much like that pitchers throw harder now, batters are stronger. And so and sometimes having us- And balls are juicier. And balls have been juicier. And so having a, uh, the reality of it is, is that if you look at how we've gone as far as building of ballparks, we've actually gone to, in most cases, smaller parks rather than larger parks in recent years. And I think a change like that could be, uh, could make a a pretty significant impact on the game and in ways where it would encourage more balls in play, which I do think I'm, I don't, again, I don't mind home runs. I don't think that it's an affront to the game or anything like that, but I do want balls in play. And doing something like that to me would positively impact balls in play. Yeah. And
1: and I don't fault you if you want more balls in play. I don't necessarily not want more balls in play. I just think home runs are the most fun thing especially when they're you know Galloway in home runs which or, will, God,
2: that won't be affected by this or, because... i know i know
1: or stantonian home runs or whatever I, right. I like home runs i like home but, runs a lot um, <laughs> i like i like seeing a guy set the ball far as ball as far as possible and throw it as hard as possible and make it bend in wicked ways uh more than i do singles through the right side i guess
2: but again, so, okay. and I'm not even disagreeing to you like that. If all we're doing is is trading home runs for singles, that's not all that exciting to me. Doubles and triples are exciting. And to me, a double and triple can be just as exciting as a home run. And so that's where I want to encourage it.
1: You might also um, get more insane catches that way too. Uh,
2: yeah. uh, again, th- those are pretty fun. Yeah, so to me, that's that's the way I would do it. And let's, if
1: if you really want to go off the wall and we really want to talk traditionalist and purist, let's go all the way back, especially for these new low A Southeast home plate umps. Uh, back in the day, home plate umps sat in rocking chairs behind home plate. Let's get that going again. Uh,
2: okay. You want to go another way? How about let's go old high school on this? You know, but this was also true way back in major league baseball. And like, you know what? The fence is going to be so far away that we're going to put fans in the outfield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, that would be another way to do it. We're just not going to have an outfield wall. We're just going to have that's really, again, that's a way changing the game too much. Bases are actually pillows. No, but, uh. you know, but, but <laughs> if you actually said, you know, the home, the, 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 the outfield wall must be 500 feet from home plate. Well, all of a sudden, okay, Mark McGuire going back a few years may have hit that ball 430 feet, but he's really slow. So he was only able to get a double out of that. Whereas, you know, a speedster, Billy Hamilton got the ball down the line and it kept rolling. So he got a, you know, home run on the ball that never went more than 380 feet.
1: Oh, that, that would be, that would be absolutely wild too. About um, the old substitution rule where you, just had to yell out your name. Cooper. Well, that, that, yes. Well, I mean,
2: now you're back in the, what, 1880s? Well, that's where I was with the home plate umpire's chairs, too. Yes, that's true. But <laughs> if you want to be traditionalist, let's go all
1: it? the way back. Finley, uh, you know. It oh, I, was, I want. Who was the I player? Want that, uh, King Kelly. Um, is yes. I think the one King Kelly. Re- yes, yes, yes. But also, you mentioned Finley completely uh, by happenstance. Bring back Charlie Finley's uh,
2: baseball-delivering rabbit. To home plate. Well, we already have, you know, that we can do right now because uh, you know, we already have many uh, minor league dogs and pigs and uh, other animals that. uh
1: Yes, and while we're at it, I don't care what it has to be done. Get bat dogs in the big leagues. Do it. Thirty of them. They're the best part of the minor leagues. Well, one of the best parts of the minor leagues. Bat dogs. All of them. Anyway, I I would not be a JJ and the Bear podcast without mentions of bat dogs.
2: Yes. That, that is a, a fair part of any JJ and the bear podcast, you know, but it's also a good way to wrap it up there, Josh.
1: Yes. Uh, for JJ Cooper, I'm Josh Norris. This has been a baseball America podcast. Remember to subscribe uh, and click on our other podcast. We've got Carlos Colazzo and Ben Badler with their future projection podcast. We've got our college podcasts every week. We've got sprinkles of JJ and the bear every now and then we've got all sorts of college content all the time. Pro stuff's kicking up. We're going to get that going. We've got uh, prospect roundup every morning. Uh, vaccinations are going up so some of us are going to start getting out into the field sooner rather than later and we are mm, like five six weeks away from the minor league season so things are picking up the quarantine is or the the pandemic is slowly going into our rearview mirror knock wood and things are looking up again josh norris jj cooper baseball america podcast bye